0: Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Bueri, and as always, I'm joined by earthquake prediction expert, Dr. Lucy Jones. We thank our individual supporters who help underwrite the work of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society through Patreon. Would you consider sponsoring this podcast for as little as $5 per month? because your support enables us to serve even more communities. Simply go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Now, let's get to it. 30 years ago, three decades ago, April 22, 1992, a magnitude 6.1 earthquake occurred under Joshua Tree National Park. It was also the closest we have ever gotten to a short-term earthquake prediction in California a public statement of a 15% chance of a big San Andreas earthquake was issued for the next three days following that earthquake. And yet it was the most universally ignored warning given. It's also the earthquake where Lucy held her now 31-year-old son while giving media interviews, but more on that later. So Lucy, take us back to 1992. Set the scene for how this prediction was issued. And to clarify, it wasn't for the Joshua Tree earthquake, but for what could have followed that earthquake.
1: Right, but to set the scene, we really need to go even further back and look at how we thought about earthquake prediction in the 1980s, and what we did to try and convey what information we did have. This was a time when we had seen what we looked like valid earthquake predictions coming out of China and the Soviet Union, and we thought we've got to try and do this. The problem, of course, is we didn't really know what to predict off of, but we saw that there was a place in California called Parkfield, which is in the central part of the San Andreas Fault that it had magnitude six earthquakes repeatedly, about every 22 years. And the idea was, here's a place where we know a magnitude six is going to be happening. Let's set up an experiment and try and record all those things that we think might work, but we're always too far away from the earthquake and so we don't actually see something. And the state of California agreed to work with the U.S. Geological Survey to do this on the condition that we were also willing to run an earthquake prediction experiment how would we go about releasing it to the public? Here was a town of 33 people. It was a place where we could experiment. So over the years, this whole thing was set up. A lot of instruments put in around Parkfield because we thought the earthquake would be happening in 1988. That was 22 years after the last one in 66. We also set up these procedures for what to say to the public. If X happens, we'll say Y. And we also worked out a system with the state of California about how to provide that information, what we would say to the state and what the state would be saying to the public. So Parkfield
0: really set the stage for how earthquake scientists would work with the state and emergency managers and how those emergency managers would speak to the public. That's what you're saying. But it all started well before 1992. This happens, what, like 1985. So what happens that gets us to 1992?
1: So yes, we set up this system and it did involve levels. We had a level A alert that the probability of 37%, we imagined we actually could calculate it that accurately, for different types of earthquakes triggering the Parkfield earthquake. But once we got that all set up, we started saying, wait a minute, how come we're willing to do this for a town of 33 people? And we haven't been willing to do this for something on the Southern San Andreas Fault that was gonna be affecting 20 million people. What would we actually say when something happened down here? What was the chance if we had an earthquake near the Southern San Andreas that it would be triggering something else? The USGS ended up asking us to form a committee. We were academic scientists after all. We set up a working group and I was the co-chair along with a guy named Carrie C. who was a professor at Caltech and one of the experts on the San Andreas Fault. we had nine scientists and one representative of the governor's office of emergency services, a guy named Mark Luducci, who is actually the director of OES at this point. And we worked through trying to figure out what we'd say. Use some of what had happened in Parkfield, but that was a pretty much a one-off way. And I ended up working with one of the other scientists on the group, a guy named Duncan Agnew at UC San Diego, to develop a methodology. And this methodology is actually rather important. I'm not going to take you through all the numbers. It is a paper that has more integrals in mathematical equations in it than any other paper I've ever written. We don't need to do all that. But I think the principle is important. What we said was if an earthquake happens somewhere, let's say near the Southern San Andreas Fault, it is either a background earthquake, one of those earthquakes that just happens, or it's a foreshock to a big earthquake coming. And we can't tell the difference, and maybe there is no difference, but we can treat them as two separate things. And the rate at which we would expect foreshocks to happen is controlled by the rate at which we have the big earthquakes. So if we have a big earthquake every 200 years, and half of them are preceded by foreshocks, which is about the number we have in California, then about every 400 years, we'd have a foreshock. The background rate depends on how big the earthquake is. There's lots of little earthquakes and fewer moderate ones and very few of the large ones. So what that means is if you have a small earthquake, it's much more likely to be a background just because there's so many of them. But if you have a large earthquake, it's more likely to be a foreshock because there's very few background earthquakes that happen at that size. What this gave us was saying first, what matters is how close it is to the fault. We looked back at previous foreshocks and saw they all happened within 10 kilometers of the main shock. So we just put an arbitrary 10-kilometer box around the San Andreas. And the bigger it was, the more likely it was to be a foreshock. And with that, we could then come up with these alert levels like we had in Parkfield, A, B, C, D, and magnitude levels of earthquakes within 10 kilometers that would put us into one of those alert levels.
0: So it was a function of distance and size gave you the letter.
1: That's right. And it was really a pretty straightforward number and that means when an earthquake happens, we could calculate exactly what the probability was. And did it matter that it was 10
0: kilometers away or two kilometers away? Did that change the number or the letter, I should say?
1: Not at the time. At that point, we didn't really have enough data to do it and we just made, we decided to go with these arbitrary boxes. Partly because we had just had the Superstition Hills earthquake in 1987, where there was a foreshock that was nine and a half kilometers away from its main shock, the farthest we'd ever seen. So at the point we were thinking, well, we really better have that bigger box. With time, we look back and say the closer it is to the fault, the more likely it is. If we did it again, we've actually redone the numbers to have a taper with the distance.
0: So we've got these ABCD. Generally, what do those letter boxes tell us?
1: D-level alert is at least a one in a thousand chance of the San Andreas earthquake in the next three days, which is sort of like, oh, we should probably notice this. This is more than background. Level C was a one to 5% chance. That's like a one in a hundred to one in 20 chance. And that's starting to be, hmm, we should at least make sure the emergency managers aren't going off on vacation. That's sort of a lower level thing. Level B was five to 25% chance of it happening okay, this is like bigger than we've really seen very often at all. (laughs) At that point, I don't think we had ever had an earthquake that would have triggered that by what we saw on the San Andreas, at least. We defined level A as being at least 25% chance of a big earthquake. But we also said, we don't know how to get to that box at this point. We're going to keep it on principle. Maybe there will be a time when we can do it at that level. But right now we have no way of getting there.
0: So these boxes and all this work you did with Kerry C. and the committee and the state of California was all done in the late 80s?
1: Correct. The paper with Agnew and Jones was published in 91. And by the time we got to early 1992, this work had all been presented to the various review agencies. There's a California Earthquake Prediction Evaluation Council and a National Earthquake Prediction Evaluation Council. Both had agreed that this was a correct methodology to be using, but we hadn't implemented it. We didn't have procedures for the USGS to make these statements. We just had agreed that they should be made.
0: And there we show up in 1992, and there's the Joshua Tree earthquake 6.1. What happens?
1: Well, actually, before the Joshua Tree 6.1, there was a Joshua Tree 4.6. So that was the first earthquake to happen. I decided to go into work. And this is still
0: on April 22nd.
1: Right. This is the evening of April 22nd, somewhere, it was after dinner, somewhere in the, you know, 7.30 or so. This earthquake happens. I go into work and did the things that we had said we would do for Level C, but hadn't yet implemented a procedure for doing it, which would involve calling the state geologist and calling the head of the earthquake program at that point over in Washington, D.C., to let them know that this had been triggered. I went through all those phone calls, and then I went back to my actual office across the street from the Seismo Lab and called Carrie C. Since we had been working together to create this, to talk through what had happened and what did we really think? 4.6, it wasn't that big. It was eight kilometers from the San Andreas. And as we're talking, I'm sitting at my desk and I start feeling it move. Carrie, there's an earthquake getting started. He's at his home over in Mid-Wilshire. He goes, I don't feel anything. Carrie, it's getting stronger. And then he goes, oh, Lucy, I feel it now. Talk to you later. I'm going under my desk. And I actually hung up on him and got in under the desk and wrote out this magnitude six, which was big enough to be pretty strong shake. I'm thinking this is coming from the San Andreas. Maybe this is going to be it. It didn't grow that large. It stopped after a bit. And we got up and went to respond to this. And then for the next few hours, we're dealing with this magnitude six near the San Andreas.
0: Just to remind folks, this is still a time when you're calculating things and looking at technologies that are not like we're using today. It's not an instantaneous exact location, correct? When that 6.1 came in, what was the technology you were using?
1: We had just implemented our real-time location. So we actually did have the location and it was pretty accurate. The magnitudes, we didn't do so well. So I ran back across the street and looked at the paper record to estimate the magnitude, which came out at about magnitude six, by which time other people had come in. And that's actually my husband is also a seismologist, he was home taking care of our boys, felt the earthquake and actually said to our son who he was trying to get to settle down, if you don't stop moving around, you're never gonna get to sleep. And then of course realized it was an earthquake and not the boy jumping around, grabbed up the kids and came into work. And we then went through this whole big earthquake response. And because we already had our relationship with the governor's office of emergency services, they showed up in the lab and we had a consultation about this. Very clearly, it was about 15% chance, sort of right in the middle of that level B alert. We ended up making an announcement in a press event. The governor's representative and me standing there saying, this is a 5 to 25% chance of being a San Andreas foreshock. And we said it to the public there at about, I don't know, 11 p.m. or midnight by the time we'd gotten the information together.
0: And what happened? What was the reaction from that?
1: The reaction was, oh... There was hardly anything that came through. The one direct feedback we got was from the emergency management department at the city of Los Angeles who called us up to yell at us, how could we possibly be so irresponsible as to say it to the public when the probabilities were that low? And my response was, you have an earthquake prediction response plan. This is the highest probability you're ever going to (laughs) see. But of course, people thought we were going to be doing better than that and didn't realize that that was as good as it was ever going to get.
0: So you made the prediction with consultation of your peer scientists in consultation with the state, the governor's office to make sure that they were ready. And you made this statement. And what did you tell people to do? I mean, at midnight, a lot of folks probably were sleeping. The papers probably had already gone to press. What was the next couple of days like?
1: Well, the next couple of days, this would be the type of thing you want to make sure that you're ready for this. Have you looked at what your supplies are, that sort of thing? I actually with my older son's school, he was in kindergarten. I realized it was April and people do their earthquake drills in April back then because of the anniversary of the 1906 earthquake and his school that he'd been in for 6 months had never had an earthquake drill. So I did go by his school and say, "You're doing an earthquake drill this morning because we now have this situation and you've never gotten these kids ready." But it was Just that sort of level, that was as far as it got. Mostly it was ignored. We got a follow-on to that, though, in that those earthquakes, the aftershocks to Joshua Tree continued. And then two months later, we had, if you will, an aftershock to Joshua Tree, but that became the Landers earthquake and was a magnitude 7.3. It was on the same overall fault system, going quite a bit farther north from Joshua Tree, but the aftershocks to Landers also extended all the way south, down to the San Andreas Fault. And now instead of eight kilometers away, we were seeing the aftershocks, magnitude threes and fours, happening within a kilometer or two of the San Andreas. That raised our levels of concern. But the main shock itself, the 7.3, was far enough away that it didn't fall within 10 kilometers of the San Andreas. We had a lot of debate about what to say. There was a formal statement from the governor's office that morning of the Landers earthquake asking people to stay off the freeways, remembering the collapsed freeways in the Loma Prieta earthquake. Stay off the road if you possibly can, because of the chance of more earthquakes today. Of course, it was Sunday morning, so it was easier to say stay off the freeways than it might have been if it had been a workday.
0: And here we are now, 30 years later. The state of California has never issued a prediction warning like this since. People have changed. I mean, you've retired. Carrie C. retired. All these folks that were there 30 years ago have left. What's your level of confidence that we'll be able to do this again? And I guess the bigger question is, will we do this again as a community, as Southern California, as California to say, here's what could come and let people know?
1: I hope we will do it again. I will say that the science has advanced. My methodology has been replaced by a more elegant formulation from Andy Michael. I think we will know what to say. And I think we will take into account the distance from the fault. I'm a little concerned, though, that we'll insist on consultation and it'll take too much time because we no longer have the relationships in place. The ability to get those statements out in time depends upon people. This is more than science. We need to make sure that as earthquakes don't happen, we maintain our relationships. Earthquake prediction has never been just a scientific problem. It is very much a social problem as well what we need to say and how we need to communicate it is just important as how you calculate the numbers.
0: Before we leave today's episode, we'll go back to the fact that you mentioned that your husband gathered up your boys and brought them into the lab to come to work. By that point, there was a swarm of media reporters because at that time, everybody just descended upon the Caltech Seismolab when there was an earthquake of this size. You're giving interviews. The course of your public persona changes forever that night. Longtime listeners or longtime fans of your communication skills from the 90s and into 2000s, they probably remember this. What happened with your son? Can you just set the record straight?
1: Yes, that night was clearly an important image for a lot of people. It defined a lot of who I was seen as being. I got called Seismo Mom by the LA Times, and I discovered for the next decade or two, I would have people ask me about my baby. Oh yeah, the guy who's playing high school football. Yeah, I haven't carried him on my hip in a while. But looking back, I can understand that what we were doing that night, when people come and listen to the seismologist, they are looking for reassurance. They are looking for normality and redefine that things are okay. And holding a baby as I did this just made people feel better.
0: Well, let's leave it there for now. And until next time, I'm John Buary with Dr. Lucy Jones and you getting through it. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows and become a supporter at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Our music is performed by Josh Lee, and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones.